I cannot remember being this excited for any podcast. It is so wonderful to once again be live on the Parsha podcast from the glorious Torch Center in Houston, Texas. My name is Rabbi Yaakov Wolby. This is the Parsha podcast. My email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. This is such an incredible Parsha, such a fun Parsha, so much drama and mystery and action. Of course, we have the first quarantine where Noah and his family quarantine in the ark. It's an apocalyptic story. We read about the rainbows. At the end of the parsha, we have the Tower of Babel. There is so much going on, and let's jump right in. So I want to start off talking about Noah and who he was. And every year, trying to figure out what to make of Noah. He is arguably the most enigmatic figure in the whole Torah. Of course, he is lavishly praised. We have a whole parsha named after him, and he's given incredible plaudits and honor, and he's called a tzaddik, and he finds favor in God's eyes of the entire world. He's the only righteous one who survives. And that, of course, is the praise that is given to Noah. On the other hand, he is quite sharply criticized. He's compared to Abraham negatively. We're told, Rashi quotes this, that Noah, he needed a crutch. He needed a boost from God. Whereas Abraham, he was able to subsist spiritually even without a boost. In the Midrash, he is compared negatively to Moshe. We're told in the Midrash that Moshe was much greater than Noah. Why? Because Noah was originally called an Ish Tzadik, a righteous man. But ultimately, towards the end of the Parsha, he was downgraded and he was labeled an earthly man, an Ish Adama. So Noah had a negative decline in his spiritual journey, whereas Moshe was initially called Ish Mitzri, an Egyptian man, but ultimately he is called a Ishalokim, a godly man. Now, by the way, a secret for you for the special Parsha podcast audience, according to the Kabbalists, we're told something very fascinating, that Moshe and Noah are actually the same soul. Moshe is a reincarnation of Noah. And Noah was given a task, and he was given 120 years to fulfill his task, and he failed. He, of course, survived personally, but the whole world was destroyed. And therefore, that soul was given a second chance, and Moshe lived, of course, exactly 120 years. It was given a second 120 years to fulfill the same task, and the second time, Indeed, Moshe was successful in the task in the 120 years that he was given. So that's an interesting thing on the side. And of course, there's a lot of parallels between Moshe and Noah. The word teva, which means an ark, is used only twice in the Torah, once in respect to the ark of Noah, and a second time in respect to the little boat that was made for Moshe as a baby. Of course, there's a lot of parallels in the fact that uh, their life really revolves around water, Moshe's thrown into the water, Moshe splits the water, Moshe hits the rock and the water comes out. And of course, Noah, his life surrounds the water of the flood. There are many, many interesting overlaps and parallels between these two people. 
And we're told, again, according to the Kabbalists, that Moshe is, in fact, a reincarnation of, of Noah. So that's interesting. And that, of course, would give more color to the Midrash that compares the two and says, well, they are similar to a certain extent, but Moshe was in an ascendant trajectory, whereas Noah was in decline. He started off as a righteous man and became an earthly man, whereas Moshe started off as an Egyptian man and became a godly man. But regardless, it is kind of bizarre that he, or Noah is, is so hard to kind of pinpoint who he is, what he represents, what his standing is. And that's almost like the theme of Noah, and it is indeed something that warrants investigation. So, of course, Rashi tells us, and we mentioned this in the other podcast, and this is something that I kind of grapple with each year. The verse says that Noah is righteous in his generation. So the question is, what's the inference in his generation? So Rashi brings two opinions. According to one opinion, he was righteous in his generation, a generation full of sinners. Imagine how great he would have been had he been in a more righteous generation, had he been, for example, in Abraham's generation. He was so great despite his surroundings. Imagine how much better he would have been had he had more positive influences around him. That's the first opinion, Rashi. The second opinion is the exact opposite. The second opinion says that he was righteous in his generation, in his generation alone, he was righteous. But had he been in Abraham's generation, he would not have been considered anything. He would have not have amounted to anything. This is kind of bizarre. The Torah labels him as a tzaddik. And we have two opinions that disagree if this is a compliment or a criticism. Noah was ish tzaddik, was a righteous man, tamim, perfectly righteous, bitterosov, in his generation. According to one opinion, even in his generation, imagine how great he would have been in a better generation. And the other opinion is the exact opposite. It says, no, only exclusively in his generation he was righteous, but had he been with Abraham, he would not have been considered anything. So I think it's really odd that in the Torah in general, it's very unusual, very rare for people to be judged, either positively or negatively, for people to be assessed. Yet with Noah, we see him both positively assessed and negatively assessed, and that of course raises the question, who was Noah? What are the lessons that we can learn from him? And what is his standing? What is his stature in the Torah? And this year I want to share with y'all a new approach that I have developed. So let's go to where Noah is criticized. He's criticized in chapter 9 of our Parsha. This is, of course, after the flood, 120 years before the flood, gather all the animals, go into the ark and spend about a year in the ark and all the drama that happened at the end of, of that year. Of course, we know based upon the Midrash and Rashi that throughout the year itself was a very busy year for, for Noah and God remembers him and they go out and of course there's the raven and there's the dove and we know the story. And then God says, okay, here's the covenant. I'm not going to destroy the, wa- the world again with water. You have the covenant, you have the rainbow and things are great. And then we read chapter 9, verse 18. It says that the sons who came out of the ark with Noah were Shem, Ham, and Yafes. And 
these were the three sons of Noah, and from these, the whole world was spread out. Okay, we're starting from scratch. Noah, his three sons, and let's begin from here. And then we read verse 20. Noah, Ish Adama, the man of the earth. Okay, this is where he's being criticized. He was originally the righteous man. Now he's the man of the earth. Debased himself, defiled himself, and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, and he uncovered himself within the tent. This is a very embarrassing episode that's going to happen. Noah comes out of the ark. Everyone's relieved to finally be out of this terrible claustrophobic experience. The animals go. The people are given a blessing or a promise by God that's not going to happen again. Here is the rainbow. Fantastic. It's time to begin to rebuild the land. Everything's been destroyed. It's time to start from scratch. So Noah, the man of the earth, the earthly man, he debased himself according to the Torah. And he planted a vineyard. And then he took the grapes and made them into wine and got drunk. And it was a really embarrassing episode that happened. So here Rashi tells us something very interesting. Rashi says that he debased himself. He defiled himself. What did he do so wrong? So simply put, you would say, well, he got drunk and he was naked and very embarrassing episode that happened to him. But that's not what Rashi says. He debased himself. He defiled himself by planting the vineyards. Why? He should have planted something else. This is Rashi according to the Midrash. He should have planted something else, maybe wheat, maybe pomegranates, maybe grass, I don't know, trees, sequoia trees, something else. But he planted vineyards first. He misplanted He should have done something else first, and therefore, he debased himself. So this is somewhat of a head-stretcher. This seems to be very benign criticism. It's not like the Torah, according to Rashi, the Midrash, it's not like there's criticism that he planted vines. That's not the criticism. He should have planted vines. He took vines with him, like the Midrash explains. He took vines with him. He took the saplings of all the various different fruits and and produces and grasses and all those things that go from the ground. He took them all with him to plant it in the ground after things settle down, after the flood is over. So the criticism is not that he planted vines. The criticism is the order. He should have planted vines, but only after other things, maybe wheat or something else. So this seems, like we said, to be quite benign criticism or quite benign, innocent mistake. Yet the Torah says that he defiled himself. He became an earthly man. He was on high. He was righteous. He was close to God. He found favor in God's eyes. And now he's earthly. Now he's planting vines. Look at this terrible person. What's so bad? So he messed up on the order, should have done something else first. Why is that considered to be such a severe violation? So I want to suggest an approach that I think will help explain the Torah's perspective on Noah, or at least an angle, a dimension of Noah. I think it has also some very valuable lessons for us 
And I think it's also a very uh, germane and a salient idea that could really change our lives. So is Noah a tzaddik? Is he righteous or is he not righteous or only relatively righteous? So we're told he's righteous in his generation. Well, what about had he been in a different generation? So there's two opinions in Rashi. Rashi means two opinions. According to one opinion, he would have been even greater in a different generation. That makes a lot of sense. You know what? He had so much resistance. There were so much headwinds in his generation. Everyone's sinning. It's really, really hard to maintain your righteousness and your morality surrounded by such evil. Imagine if he didn't have that resistance. He would have been even greater. That makes tons of sense. But what about the second opinion of Rashi? Had he been in Abraham's generation, he would not have amounted to anything. How could you say that? The Torah says he's righteous. How could you say, or what's the logic behind the idea that had he not had resistance, had he been around Abraham, he would have been nothing? What does that even mean? How could he say he would have been nothing? Abraham uplifted everyone. Why would Noah not be greater when, or in the event that he would be surrounded by people like Abraham? What is the logic in this opinion of Rashi to say that Noah, had he been with Abraham, he wouldn't have been anything. He would have been even worse. It seems kind of a very strange thing that Rashi says. So my grandfather, blessed memory, he said an idea. He said that there are various ways to grow. There are various ways to develop spiritually. Before the flood, Noah was righteous. That we know for sure. In his generation, he was righteous. And there was unprecedented evil around him. People are sinning in all kinds of horrific ways. Yet, despite that all, Noah was righteous. He managed to forge ahead despite the stiff opposition. So what would have happened had he not had the opposition. So the simple understanding is, had he been with Abraham, he would have been even greater. That makes sense. The second opinion of Rashi is saying something counterintuitive. Everyone agrees that Noah was righteous in his generation. But according to the second opinion, they are giving us a different understanding as to how Noah achieved his greatness. Noah was a kind of personality that was a contrarian. He flourished in opposing the ways of the sinners around him. He was an iconoclast. He was someone who reveled in being different than the people around him. He was someone who thrived in a chaotic environment. So the first opinion says that he became great notwithstanding the evil around him. The second opinion says no. It's not that he became great despite the people around him. He only became great precisely because of the people around him. He was galvanized by the sinners around him to pursue righteousness instead. Had he been with Abraham, he would have amounted to nothing. Without the bad environment around him to propel him forward, he would not have become the tzaddik that he became. It's been suggested that someone like Winston Churchill is the greatest 
wartime leader in modern times. And what we know about him, of course, one of the most interesting figures of all of history, that there was something about this horrific tyranny that awoke within him some energy, some vigor, some spirit to lead the Allies to victory. He said, I'll give my blood and my toil and my tears and my sweat and we're going to win. What happens after the war is over? After the enemy that galvanized him so thoroughly, he wasn't really that much of a leader. According to second opinion, perhaps we could say Noah was like Winston Churchill. When there was a war going on, he was fueled by the sinners of the time. And then what happened after the flood? There was no longer a sinful environment around him. And therefore, he had a spiritual dip. And the righteous man became earthly. So here's where I want to speculate some idea. And you guys will email me, rabbi.com, if you like it or if you don't. Maybe we could suggest that Noah, before the flood, he was fighting a multi-front war. Everyone around him, the entire earth became corrupt. There's corruption everywhere. And Noah wanted to maintain his righteousness. And he wanted to resist and fight the society around him. How did he inoculate himself from the forces around him? How did he rebel against the consensus? How did he go against the grain? How did he manage to remain uninfluenced by his surroundings? Maybe we could speculate that Noah, he liked to drink. He would have the wine, and the wine would dissociate him from society. He would drink the wine and thereby cocoon himself away in his own life, in his own world, and just be totally oblivious to the people around him. And that's an amazing tactic, perhaps we could say, of what you need to do. If you know there's evil all around you, you have to make sure that you just become your own man. You live your own life. You're not involved with the people around you. They can influence you negatively. So maybe we could speculate that Noah had a thing for alcohol, but he did it for righteous reasons because he wanted to totally remove himself from the people around him. He knew they were dangerous and he says, I'm not joining them. I'm going to be on my own. And he would drink. And that's, of course, fantastic. But what did he need to do when all the sinners were dead? What did he need to do after the flood? After the flood, he had to realize that this is a new reality. And he had to pivot. He had to adapt. He had to adjust. Now there's only righteous people around. There's a new reality in town. It's almost like the generation of Abraham. And he was still living in the past. He did not factor in the new reality. And he was still fighting yesterday's war. And therefore the critique of Noah when he planted, he debased himself because he did not adapt to the fact that now there's no sinners and now you don't need to be someone who's fighting your surroundings and drinking your alcohol and becoming your own person. You don't need that. Now you have to embrace the surroundings 
And it's not what he did. He did the opposite. So it's not just an isolated criticism of the order of the planting. The order of the planting, perhaps we are suggesting, that is indicative of Noah's failure to adapt and adjust to the new realities on the ground. I think this idea really gives us two fantastic lessons. For one, we can learn from Noah that no matter what the environment that we are in, we can always be ascendant. We could always have spiritual growth in any kind of environment. When we're surrounded by the righteous, well, then we try to engage and absorb the influence around us. We soak up the ways of the righteous and try to emulate their ways and try to grow. But what if it is our lot to be in the company of somewhat less admirable people? Nevertheless, there is still an avenue to become righteous. And that's what we learn from Noah. Despite the fact that we could be surrounded by all kinds of terrible people, that in itself, as Noah showed us, could propel us to fight the depravity and the immorality around us and use that as a way to propel ourselves towards becoming Sadiqim. That's lesson one. But lesson two is we have to be cognizant. We have to be aware. We have to be attuned to our environment. When the situation changes, we must adjust accordingly. Noah, perhaps we could speculate, was too fixed in the resistance mode. And of course, he excelled at fighting the establishment. But when things changed, he still went back to the vines. And that is how he became debased because he did not adapt to the world that had changed. Very powerful ideas. In every generation, in every situation, under any regime, under any circumstances, transformative growth is possible. In the summer, as the wonderful Parsha podcast audience knows, my family and I spent some time in Canada and we spent some time on a, on a lake. And on the lake, everyone besides for us has all kinds of mechanized boats and jet skis and sailboats and all kinds of cool stuff. But we had a kayak, but I'm not complaining. But anyhow, one day in the middle of the summer, I saw, we all saw, we're sitting out in the back, we saw in the lake a gorgeous, enormous sailboat. And it, it's just a, a beautiful, striking image to see these gargantuan sails billowing in the wind and just kind of zipping across the lake. And there's a tremendous amount of engineering and genius that goes into a sailboat because... Of course, what we cannot control is which direction the wind will blow. But what we can control is what we do about it. We could set our sails and set our rudder and position ourselves in a way to harness the wind that we do get and use that to propel us in whatever direction we want to go. That's a nice analogy. The environment that we're in, the winds that are swirling about around us, Oftentimes, that's not in our hands to change. We don't choose 
in which generation we are born in and which land, which place, which people will encounter. A lot of things about our environment are out of our control. But like the sailboat, we can decide what we do about it and we can configure our world to say, okay, this is the environment that I'm in right now and I'm going to adjust accordingly and use the environment to propel myself forward. If I'm surrounded by Abraham, let's, let's, let's absorb. I'm not dissociating. I'm absorbing as much as I can and I'll move forward as a result. If I'm surrounded by sinners, you know what? It's time to position those sails in a way that removes me a little bit, allows me to fight, so to speak, the forces around me, allows me to utilize this negative energy towards positive growth. They say a story about the two Hasidic masters, the two brothers, Reb Zush and Reb Meilich. And of course, with these stories, we don't know if it's exactly true and how much it's been embellished, but it's a Hasidic story Nonetheless, they say that uh, sometime in their travels, they were wont to travel and to go to different places. And one place they were arrested for whatever reason. I don't know the exact details of the story. They were arrested. And uh, these two brothers, these two Hasidic masters are in a prison cell or a jail cell. And in the jail cell, there's this pot. And in the pot, there's refuse. And it's time to pray. It's time to pray the afternoon prayers. But the problem is that the law states that you cannot pray when you are surrounded or you're in the close environment of excrement and other things that are not clean. It's not a kosher environment to pray in. So one of the brothers starts crying and wailing and he's so sad because you can't pray. How can we pray? And we want to pray. We want to pray to the Bible, but we can't. So the other brother said to him, I don't get you. The Almighty put us in this environment. And in this environment, we cannot pray. We have to rejoice at the fact that the Almighty wants us not to pray. So he hears this message and starts dancing. It's unbelievable. This is what the Almighty wants of me right now in this situation, in this circumstances. He starts dancing. He's so happy, so joyous. So the jailer comes, the person, the warden, whoever's in charge of the jail, and sees these sages, these Hasidic masters dancing. And he watches and he says, well, why, why are you dancing? He says, they point at the, uh, at the little pail, at the little jug, and they say, look at that. Because we have this over here, we can't pray. And because we can't pray, this is what the Almighty wants of us right now, in this situation, this circumstance, we're so happy, we're so delighted. And of course, this jailer didn't want these Jews to be happy. So he says, ah, oh, this is making you happy? I'm taking it out right now. Sorry, I'm taking it away from you. And of course, then they were able to pray. That's the story. But the lesson, I think, for us is... Regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the situation, provided that we orient ourselves, that we prepare ourselves, that we position ourselves to flourish in every situation we can flourish, but we also have to be aware of what the situation demands of us. I think this lesson is true always, but I think we, we're, we're actually living through it. You know, we have, of course, the coronavirus right now. And that upended everyone's life. The normal course of people's life and behavior and schedule, every, everything changed. Some people are not working. Some people are working different jobs. Some people are not commuting to work, working from home. The shuls, many of them are closed. 
our life was upended. And of course, that can be very disruptive to our spiritual lives as well. But here's the lesson. Regardless of what the situation and circumstances are, it's possible to grow. Noah lived in a terrible world for spiritual advancement, and he utilized that. He harnessed that to become greater. So that's A. B, we have to adjust. When situations change and our sails are now oriented in a way that's pushing us far away, let's not plant those vines and let's reorient our sails to fit the current regime and environment. The situation changes. We must adapt. Okay, so before we finish, let's talk about the A and Q. Answers and questions. And if you were not here last week, we launched, we debuted a new segment called A and Q, answers and questions. And the idea is, I'm going to give the question and I'm going to try to solicit answers. Now, I have been absolutely blown away by the reception of this new segment. It's been staggering how many answers I received. I received around 20 different responses. Many of them were incredible, insightful, sharp, intriguing, eye-opening answers. The volume of answers and the diversity of answers made it such that if I wanted to dedicate an entire episode to just talking about this question that we talked about last week, I probably could find an hour worth of material to go through all the answers, maybe even more, go through all the answers and the various different nuances. So thank you so much. And I did notice of all the emails people sent me, I did notice how many people mentioned how excited they are to hear the answer or the various answers. And it kind of showed me, maybe this is obvious to everyone besides for me, it kind of showed me that when people study in an active way, when they really engage and wrestle with a subject matter, that's when it's totally transformative. They say about learning, he who does the work does the learning. And I think that once people are activated to not just be passive and receptive, but to engage their mind and try to say, okay, what can I say about this? That just transforms their interest. So I think that was a nice uh, uh, takeaway. But regardless the success of the A&Q, of course, puts a lot of pressure on me because now I feel like, oh my gosh, people really like this and they're really hoping that I deliver and now I have pressure on me to give great questions each week. But hopefully the Almighty will help us as he has been helping us nonstop since the very beginning. But if you do perhaps encounter a great question, you can always send it my way, rabbiwalbejima.com. So let's talk about the question that we asked last week. Last week we asked a question. The question was again quickly. Why, when the Talmud talks about the Torah being bookended by kindness, it brings an example from the very end of the Torah, the death and burial of Moshe. God buried Moshe himself, an act of tremendous kindness. And then it says the Torah also begins with kindness. And it brings an example from chapter 3, verse 21, where God made for Adam and his wife leather garments and he clothed them. And the question that we asked is, wait a minute, why does it have to go to chapter 3 verse 21 to find an example of godly kindness. After all, the creation of the world itself is the ultimate act of kindness. God crafting a wife for Adam. It's tremendous kindness. 
why do we have to go to the end of chapter 3 where God crafts leather garments for Adam and his wife and he clothes them? Why is that the example that's used in the Talmud of the Torah beginning with kindness? So one idea that I saw in one of the emails, although it was quite insightful, is as follows. The idea of God making leather garments. So we mentioned last week, according to some opinions, that's actually a reference to skin. According to other opinions, it's a reference to just, just garments, like leather garments, like a leather jacket, if you will. So one of the listeners wrote an idea that if you look at these two bookends, you have the skin in the beginning of the Torah, and you have the burial in the end of the Torah. And the skin, or the body, the physicality, we kind of get from our parents, from our ancestors. And the burial, that's done by our descendants, by our children. And perhaps we can elaborate on this idea that the first kindness coincides with the inception of the body, and the last kindness, i.e. the one at the very end of the Torah, refers to the end of the body. Maybe the Talmud is symbolizing by choosing specifically these two kindnesses that really from the very beginning of our life when we start to get a little bit of matter, a little bit of biological matter that starts becoming a body until the very end, until our body is dead and it's deposited on the ground, we have kindness. The Almighty is showering us with kindness from the very beginning of our life until the very end of our life. And thus, of course, there are earlier examples, but this example creates like a, a continuum that throughout our lives, from the very beginning to the very end, we indeed are recipients of God's kindness. Now, most of the listeners who reached out to me and gave me answers, they noted that the kindness of the leather garments was after the sin of Adam and Eve. And there were various different ways of presenting this idea, but maybe when the leather garments come after the sin, when the kindness comes after the sin, maybe that changes the nature of the kindness. Maybe there's something really special of the Almighty helping us children who have strayed, who have disobeyed him, who have not listened to his words, who have betrayed him, who have rebelled against them, and nevertheless, he does kindness with them. That is a totally different level of kindness. And I saw in my great-grandfather's book, he said this idea. If you give kindness, it could be minor kindness. If we receive kindness from God, it could be relatively minor kindness. It's a leather garment. But you receive that after sin? That is much, much greater than the kindness of creation in the entire world before sin. Sin is such a corruptive thing that to get anything from God after we sin, after we betray him, that is indeed an example of tremendous kindness that outweighs any kindness that existed before we rebelled and before we sinned. And maybe there's a deeper insight here. On Yom Kippur, we say many times the 13 attributes of mercy, which are found in chapter 34, I believe, or 32, or 33, of the book of Exodus, after sin, golden calf, 
God says, I'm going to destroy the Jewish people. And then God says, okay, I'm going to listen to your prayers, Moshe. And here are the 13 attributes of mercy. The Talmud tells us that anytime the Jewish people say this particular formulation of 13 attributes of mercy, then they will definitely be listened to. This is a recipe that guarantees that the Almighty will hearken to our prayers. And what are the first two of the 13 attributes of mercy? Hashem, Hashem. It's the repetition of God's name. We say God's name the first time and God's name the second time. And that is one and two of the 13 attributes of mercy. Why are we repeating the same thing? Says the Talmud, the first time it says Hashem, that's a reference to God loving us before we sin. The second time it says the name of God, that's a reference of God loving us after we sin. And there's a very deep insight here. The name Hashem, the name, which is again the four-letter name of God that we are not allowed to pronounce, the ineffable name of God, that is the name we're told that God used to create the world. And it's almost as if God created the world and then after sin, he had to create the world anew. Because the first time God created the world, that creation was intolerant of sin. But in his magnanimity, he created the world anew. Hashem, Hashem, the second Hashem, second name of God, and created a new world that can tolerate divine betrayal or betrayal of the divine. So in effect, today we're living in which world? We're living in the second world, so to speak. The world where God created the world anew after sin. And yes, indeed, the first creation, beginning of Genesis, is before Adam's sin. Adam gets a wife. It's before Adam's sin. It's from an ancient world that doesn't exist anymore. It's from the first Hashem, so to speak. Hashem, who created the world, before sin. And after the sin, it's a new creation. And indeed, the first kindness in that new world was when God clothed Adam and Eve. Okay, that's some ideas on the question of last week and the answers that were given and submitted. Okay, let's start with the A and Q, drum roll please, of Parshas Noah. So there's a lot of good questions that we could ask. So, of course, in the Parsha, you have the Tower of Babel story, and the whole story itself is so bizarre what exactly is going on. The people want to build a tower to rebel against God. It seems such a strange idea. And to compound the matter, they build it in a valley, which doesn't seem to be the optimal place. If you want to build a tower to go attack God, shouldn't you start from a higher location? Why would you go to a valley and build it in a valley? So maybe that's a question that we could ask. But here's a question I want to ask. Parsha begins by telling us that the world became corrupted and people started sinning and God says, okay, the world is all corrupt. I'm going to destroy the world. This is chapter 6, verse 11, 12, and 13. Now the earth had become corrupt before God and the earth became filled with robbery and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupted for all flesh had corrupted its way upon the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with robbery through them, and behold, I am about to destroy them from the earth. 
So people are sinning. They became corrupt and there is robbery everywhere. And as a result of that, the world is going to be destroyed. So what exactly are these sins and what is the corruption? So Rashi tells us in verse 11, the earth had become corrupt. Says Rashi, the word vatishaches became corrupt could be applied on two different sins. Number one, sexual promiscuity. Number two, idolatry. And then the verse continues that the world became filled with robbery. So what were the sins of the generation of the flood? We're told three different sins. Number one, sexual promiscuity. Number two, idolatry. Number three, theft and robbery. And the earth became filled with corruption. And God said, okay, let's go destroy the earth. So let's read verse 13 again. God says, Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with robbery through them. And behold, I am about to destroy them from the earth. So what exactly triggered this destruction? So Rashi says something very peculiar. Rashi says in verse 13, the first citation Rashi, wherever you find promiscuity and idolatry, indiscriminate punishment comes to the world. So again, we have three sins, promiscuity, idolatry, and robbery. And which ones are contributing to the destruction? Rashi tells us every place that you find promiscuity and idolatry, then the inevitable result is indiscriminate punishment coming to the world. That's the first Rashi in verse 13. Says the second Rashi, for the world has become filled with robbery, their verdict was only sealed because of robbery. So there's a few questions here. First of all, Rashi starts off in verse 13 saying that idolatry and promiscuity, they bring indiscriminate punishment. Okay, so we have indiscriminate punishment, we have a flood, and apparently we have enough of a cause to justify the flood. And the very next Rashi says, no, it is robbery that is the sin that clinched the flood. That's what sealed their verdict. So which one is it? Is it the promiscuity and the idolatry? Or is it the robbery that clinched it? Now, apparently, from this Rashi, it seems to say that robbery, theft, that's the straw that broke the camel's back. This is the sin that pushed them over the edge. It seems to imply, at least that second Rashi, that it's worse than idolatry and promiscuity. And the question is why? By Torah law, promiscuity and idolatry are capital offenses. Theft is bad, it's terrible, it's robbery, it's a horrific thing, horrific crime. But it's not a capital crime. It is less severe. So I saw the Ramban, and the Ramban says that there's two reasons why theft is what really clinched the flood. Number one, because theft is a logical sin. It makes sense not to steal. You don't need a prophet to tell you that. Everyone knows. It's like natural law. Everyone knows that the steal is improper. Moreover, it is a sin which is both a sin against man. It's a crime against humanity. It's also a crime against God. And therefore, that's what makes robbery worse than 
promiscuity, and idolatry. And the problem with that is that, wait a minute, all the seven Noahide mitzvos, the Rambam tells us, they are all logical. They're things that we don't need to have a prophet to know that there's something wrong with it. And amongst the list of seven Noahide laws that apply to everyone is promiscuity and idolatry. And of course, promiscuity, sexual sins, could certainly be a crime against man and against God. So here's the question. I know this is maybe a little bit complicated, a lot of moving parts here. Rashi says, quoting from the Talmud, that robbery is what pushed them over the cliff. Why? They're doing idolatry? There is adultery and other sexual crimes that is rampant? Why is robbery the sin that pushes them over the edge? If you have any answers to this question or to figure out what is going on in these Rashis, verse 11, 12, and 13, send them to me. My email address is rabbiwobajima.com. Once again, it's a total joy and pleasure to study the Parsha with y'all. The best audience in the podcast universe, the Parsha podcast. My name is Rabbi Yaakov Wolby, and I'm looking forward to your emails. Have an amazing Shabbos, and please, God, we'll talk next week.